at the end of the day, like construction costs are still high. Insurance is very expensive. It's definitely still challenging in terms of new development. I'd say given that you know, Swipe Properties Miami is able to, to leverage the benefits of the parent company's balance sheet, which is, is, is very strong, we're not so sensitive to you know, fluctuations in the financing markets, the interest rate environment. We think it's, uh, it's the right time to capture all of this demand and interest that's being focused on Miami at the moment. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast from The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Cavanaugh. It's Monday, October 9th. Today, our guest is Henry Bott. He's the president of Swire Properties U.S. division. Swire is a development firm based in Hong Kong, but they've been building in Miami for about 40 years. Their claim to fame is the development of Brickle Key, this man-made island off the coast of Miami. Yeah, it's it's such a small space. I was surprised. I looked it up. It's like less than a tenth the size of Central Park. And it looks exactly like that piece you move around a Ouija board. Right, this little tiny triangle. <laughs> so Swire has been developing on that site for decades. And this year it announced it would build a handful of super tolls on the last slice of space left. And just over in the mainland neighborhood of Brickell, Swire announced an office development that would stand as Florida's tallest building when completed. All of that is notable because the lending markets have thrown a pretty huge wrench in new development. So we really dug into how Swire is working through those challenges and what exactly it has planned. But first, the news. Let's start with how the Supreme Court snubbed landlords last week. Susanna, you reported that story with Catherine Brenzel. What happened there? Right. So we've talked about the 2019 rent law a good bit, this package of legislation that effectively made it impossible for landlords to raise rents if they operate rent-stabilized buildings. And in the past four years, expenses in those buildings have risen significantly. That has pressured landlords' bottom lines, their ability to cover debt service. It's also made it tough for them to repair their apartments. So citywide disinvestment. That's what we're seeing. And it's really starting to show up in foreclosure filings. I haven't gotten any data on this yet, but I've seen a number over the past several months. So back to the lawsuit, immediately after the legislation passed, two landlord groups filed a suit challenging the entire basis of rent stabilization. And after four years or so, it finally made it to the Supreme Court. And was that their intent the whole time? It definitely became the goal over time. I don't know if it was their goal at the outset, but the hope there was the court's conservative majority and a recent ruling that favored property owners coupled together, those two could possibly give landlords a shot of not only being heard, but winning a favorable ruling. And a favorable ruling would have thrown out rent stabilization in New York? The idea is it would have pushed the legislature to make changes to the law in accordance with whatever the Supreme Court found unlawful. So what happened on Monday? Yeah, so bad news for landlords. Their suit did not make the list of accepted cases. CHIP, which is one of the groups that sued, CHIP's executive director, Jay Martin, sort of characterized it as like when you go to see if you made varsity and then your name's just not on the list. So, yeah, it really shuts the door on four years of work. I imagine that there's still legal moves there, though. Yeah, so there are two other suits challenging New York rent stabilization that could be accepted by SCOTUS. 
both target the 2019 rent law more specifically. Um, and some in the industry think that means they could beget a different outcome because the suit that got thrown out, that was, you know, rent stabilization as a whole. It was really a sweeping challenge, broad-faced. But we should know what pans out with those other two suits by tomorrow. That's when we're expected to get some information. And a little bit of self-promotion here, but a story you and I have worked on for the past month went live this week. It's the cover story for our October issue. And it looks at one of the so-called gurus or coaches teaching people how to become multifamily investors. He's Brad Sumrock. Yes. So this piece stems from our wider coverage of syndicators, folks who pool money from many investors to buy properties. Sumrock basically created a business on this, charging thousands of dollars for programs that teach the craft of syndication. But through speaking with former and current students, we learned that some of the advice provided through Sumrock's group or his coaches may have led these newbie investors, people with literally no real estate experience, to take on floating rate debt without understanding the possible risks or how to insulate themselves from those risks. Right. And now deals are struggling. Several of them are Sumrocks himself. We heard of at least one capital call after talking to several of his students. And that distress has led students to question how much the apartment master, which is what he calls himself, really knows about investing. So check out that story if you haven't yet. It's certainly a colorful one. Oh, and this Airbnb squatter story that we picked up from the LA Times has played really well. It's a great one. <laughs> right. So a woman renting an Airbnb in Brentwood, California, hasn't paid rent in nearly a year and a half, I think it is. Yeah, it was over 500 days. And her argument is the unit was never approved for occupancy and its shower was built without a permit. And a judge has sided with her so far, ruling that under L.A.'s rent control law, there's no legal reason to evict her. She's refused to move unless the host pays her a relocation fee of $100,000. It reminds me of that hotel story we had last week. And we also got a settlement in the Nightingale Crowd Street fiasco. So as a refresher, Nightingale Properties raised tens of millions of dollars through crowdfunding platform Crowd Street to buy two buildings, one in Atlanta, one in Miami Beach. But neither deal closed. And in July, a fiduciary appointed by the investors who put in those funds found that they had been misappropriated by Nightingale. Across both deals, Nightingale raised $63 million. Oh, and it also came out that last month, Nightingale CEO Eli Schwartz had used about $12 million of investor money to bet on First Republic stock and options right before the bank was seized by regulators. So the agreement stipulates that Nightingale will pay investors $4 million per quarter over the next three years, and that will require the firm to sell off parts of its portfolio, some of which is already struggling. It could also literally put Schwartz out of house and home. As part of the agreement, Schwartz put liens on his Manhattan penthouse, his personal home, his jewelry, watches, art. And if he doesn't dig up the funds to pay investors in the next six months, he'll have to sell his house, according to BizNow. So definitely go back and listen to our episode digging into crowdfunding and the Crowd Street fiasco in more depth if you haven't already. So we're going to get into our chat with Squire's Henry Bott in a moment. But first, we're going to check in with our residential bureau chief for South Florida, Catherine Kalurgis, for some context around the state of commercial development in Miami. 
And one takeaway here is I think it's important to note that developers announce plans all the time, anytime. The question here is when any of it will actually be finished. Catherine, thank you for coming on a frequent, frequent guest at this point. Um, But so I wanted to talk about development trends in South Florida. It seems like developers in Miami and South Florida are still pushing forward with plans to build hotels, condo projects, office buildings, even though we're in a very different economic environment than, say, we were two years ago, 18 months ago, even. Let's talk about hotels first. Could Miami use new hotels or developers betting on luxury and resort properties or all types? In terms of hotels specifically, there, you know, there are some projects proposed, but for the most part, developers are not really moving forward with with hotels. And if they are, there is a residential component to it um, because financially, that's the only way it makes sense. And at the same time, like there is an emphasis on luxury, just like with anything else, I think that we're seeing now that's new, like luxury office, luxury residential. So the market, like. Like you said, 18 months ago, it's it's a different story today. Rates were really high, and South Florida was one of the regions that like benefited, obviously, like during the ca- pandemic. But they've come down a bit, and I think that like that is giving developers more pause when it comes to just strictly hotel development. And so, yeah, I'm glad that you brought up residential because I feel like I see, and not only in South Florida, but hotel branded condo projects seem to be really popular right now related, you know, we had this story late last month, but related group and Merrimack Ventures are planning to build a Waldorf Astoria branded condo project in Pompano Beach. Can you explain what exactly a hotel branded condo residence project is and what exactly the attraction is there? Yeah, I feel like we have like if we didn't invent it, like it's something that has just really boomed here. Um, But basically what it is, is like a developer is building a condo development and they bring in a, a brand, like a, usually a hotel brand, but but honestly, we also have like Porsche Design and Bentley and Aston Martin. I mean, I'm naming car brands, but there are other branded buildings and they'll sign an agreement with the, with the brand. So they pay a fee. And then at the end of the day, like whoever buys the units ends up paying a premium because they're, you know, they're also paying for that name. Basically, like you're living in a condo building and it is branded Ritz Carlton or it's branded Waldorf Astoria. So they can charge, the developer can charge a premium for that um, level of service and amenities and just even just like the name recognition. So you get access to hotel amenities. Yeah. In some cases, there is a hotel, like the um, Four Seasons branded development in Surfside includes like a small hotel. And then there's, there's also condos. And then there's also hotel residences in the, you know, in the development. That's like the most successful example, I would say, in recent memory, because Rates there are in the thousands of dollars, you know, daily rates are in the thousands of dollars. And in terms of sales, uh, a unit there set a record on a per square foot basis for all of Miami-Dade County. So it's like, that's kind of, I think, proving the the business model in a way. There's a negative association with like the word like condo hotel. But when you make it like a hotel branded condo, it's like a different story. And so Swire is a developer that is building a branded condo project. They have unveiled plans for a Mandarin branded condo project in Brickle Key. And I think that one also has a hotel component. Yeah. So that is, um, they're basically uh, knocking down the existing Mandarin Oriental Hotel that is on Brickle Key that was built, I think, maybe like over 20 years ago. And they will be building two towers. Um, most of it will be condo, but there is, I think like 150 key hotel that's going to be part of it that will be a Mandarin. And that like for a long time 
was one of the nicest hotels in Miami. And I think it's just gotten a bit tired and, and, you know, they have land next door and they realized that this was kind of like a good time to move forward with, with a super tall, basically. Cause one of the, one of the towers is going to be like 800 feet tall. Wow. Wow. And that, I assume that stands out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the idea. Yeah. You know, you mentioned developers are kind of holding back. Um, we've seen this kind of across the country, but are there a lot of players sitting on the sidelines, pausing planning or construction or struggling to get financing? Yeah, financing is a big issue here. Um, I mean, we were reporting on construction loans, but I think there's a lot of, there's definitely a lot of projects that are, you know, there's like site work underway, or they're tweaking their floor plans, or, you know, there's like stuff happening to kind of account for these delays. But at the end of the day, like, construction costs are still high, insurance is very expensive. And this is kind of across the board, like not specific to hotels or office or branded condos. And I think you're going to see, you know, delivery dates get pushed. I mean, we've already kind of seen that, but it's definitely still challenging in terms of new development. One thing that always surprises me is whenever a developer unveils plans to build office properties, considering, you know, the state of the office market and how a lot of office buildings are struggling. And Swire is one of those firms they are planning to build new offices in Brickell. Are they an outlier here or are there other firms looking at new office development? I mean, there's other firms that are, you know, planning new office. I think when they do that is kind of the question. Um, Swire is partnering with related companies on the super tall office tower. That's actually going to be like, I think over a thousand feet tall in Brickle. And that's moving forward. I think that's kind of the biggest example and the most high profile example. But there, there are other proposals. And if you kind of like zoom out a bit and you look at like West Palm, you know, there's a ton of new office construction there. Um, even on Miami Beach, there's, you know, there's, there's smaller projects that are planned. So it's definitely happening. I think it's just like a matter of like, when do all of these other ones get built? And I think also Swire and Related potentially move forward with their plans when they saw what was happening at a nearby development called 830 Brickle, where, you know, asking rents are over $100 a foot. I think it's supposed to be completed either this year or next year. So it's kind of like that'll be a test. And that has kind of served as a test for some of these other developers to kind of announce their plans or, you know, even move forward with construction. That's interesting. They have a baseline. I know that they're definitely seeing that in LA too. There's a big building that's coming online in Century City in 2026 and it's almost fully leased. And so I think developers are like, okay, well, that's a good, (laughs) that's good news. Right. Right. And I actually, I spoke with somebody who was saying that it's like, yes, they're getting these, you know, there's getting these tenants and they have these commitments, but the question is kind of like, you know, do they end up renewing? And so I think like, at the end of the day, it's going to take years to kind of see like how well the, how the office market responds to some of this new construction, because, you know, when did they, when they signed a lease, it kind of shows like where, where we were, you know what I mean? Like it's a different, it can be a different story, like in, I don't know, five, 10 years. So Henry, thank you for coming on. Um, can you take a couple of seconds just to introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Henry Bott. I'm the president of Swire Properties USA, based here in Miami. Personally, I've been with Swire for about 13 years, um, mainly in Asia. And this is my first hosting in the US, living and working in the US. I arrived in January. So still pretty new to the market here. You're one of many people who have moved to Miami in the last few years. Um, tell me first, you know, what interests you about the commercial market, and then we can kind of get into some other questions. 
I think uh, the commercial market, I mean, from what I see here, and particularly in Brickell, the vast majority of the, of the existing stock is, is old, right? It's old and potentially becoming increasingly functionally obsolete because of the change in occupier requirements post-pandemic. And there's not a lot of new, truly grade A supply. I mean, you see 830 Brickle that's come on, it's about to come online to the end of this year, next year. I mean, that, that was built on spec with huge success because it just timed the market perfectly. But there's a real demand for that sort of, you know, that flight to quality. And uh, after one BCC, other than you know, Ken Griffin's project, there's not much else. So we believe that we can really dominate in, in that space and, and um, be the sort of the leading game in town. What has, you know, since moving to the US, what's something that's really struck you from a real estate standpoint? I think um, I've really noticed a uh, similarity actually in terms of the, the energy and the, the dynamism with within the, the market, particularly sort of the residential-led mixed-use development uh, compared to what I was doing in, in Vietnam. I mean, there's been a huge amount of development in Vietnam and Miami over the last sort of five to seven years. Whilst the stage of development is obviously very different, the, the dynamism and this focus on residential-led mixed use with a lot of focus on the amenities is, is something that I've noticed that, that's quite similar, actually. There seems to be a substantial kind of increase in interest for hotel-branded residences. Can you talk about that and the attraction there? Yeah, I think that it's it's really the sweet spot, isn't it, between having the scale and sort of privacy that a single family home or a very luxurious villa gives you. But then also with the, the security and the convenience and the service that you get from you know, benefiting from that, having that hospitality, that hotel component on site. You have a new Brickle Key project, the Mandarin branded one. A lot of players are pausing development plans right now, um, given that financing markets are so up in the air and a little bit more challenging than they were a couple of years ago. First, tell me about the project and then tell me why you're planning to move forward with it. Yeah, so the, the project is called One Island Drive. And as you say, it's the redevelopment of the existing Mandarin Hotel on Brickle Key with the addition of about 300 uh, private residences for sale that will be under the Mandarin brand. Swire, as I, as I mentioned, has been developing on Brickle Key as part of a master plan there for 40 years. So we take a very long-term view and... One Iron Drive will be the final portion of development on the island. It's the last piece of developable land there. I'd say given that you know, Swire Properties Miami is able to, to leverage the benefits of the parent company's balance sheet, which is, is, is very strong, we're not so sensitive to you know, fluctuations in the financing markets, the interest rate environment. And given you know, how hot Miami is at the moment, particularly over the last sort of, you know, 18 months, 24 months since the pandemic, we think it's uh, it's the right time to, to move forward with that project and capture all of this demand and interest that's being focused on Miami at the moment. Do you think that there are, def- are players that are sitting on the sidelines right now in Miami? I think so, yeah. I mean, given how much you know, cost escalation there was, particularly in sort of construction costs uh, last year, I think this year you're seeing that come off a little bit. But you, know, you combine that with the dramatic increase in interest rates towards the end of last year, like that's that's a, a perfect storm for those developers who are a lot more sensitive to, to financing. Um, so we we see the strength of our balance sheet as a bit of a competitive advantage, and 
I think it's something that gives prospective buyers in our projects the confidence that you know we can weather any storm and, and we will actually go forward and develop this this project. You're also planning to build one Brickle City Center, which is an office project with Related. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that project? Yeah, and we're very excited about that as well. I mean, it's, an, it's a fantastic um, prospect, amazing location. Um, you know, Steve Ross from uh, Related loves to say that it's on Main and Main, right? It's on Brickle Avenue and then between South, uh, Southeast 8th and 7th Street. So a fantastic location. And it's in an, one of the, the best markets in the US at the moment. And whilst Office perhaps is at the bottom of the food chain nationally in Miami, I think uh, we believe it can, it can certainly buck the trend. So it's going to be the largest uh, four plates of any commercial sort of office approved by the city of Miami and potentially the tallest commercial office tower in the city. And um, at the moment, we are sort of deep into uh, conversations, discussions with prospective anchor tenants, which we hope will continue to progress well. And by the end of the year, we expect to, to have some binding commitments that will then give us the, the confidence to, to move forward with the financing and hopefully break ground within next year. Got it. So you want to have some kind of leases in place before? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So how, you know, obviously office is a really challenging market right now. Can you talk about, you know, how you're thinking about the office market and how you kind of plan to differentiate from other office buildings that might be, you know, struggling a little bit? Yeah, I think the huge benefit that we have is that we're able to design this office product for the post-pandemic environment, right? We can see, you know, how the demands of occupiers have changed uh, since the, the pandemic, and we're now designing this new product responding directly to that. The vast majority of existing office stock in, in Miami, particularly in Brickell, is all older stock, which doesn't have that benefit of, of, sort of redesigning. So what we're creating with One Brickell City Centre, we believe really will be the, the future of office. So you know those sort of basic um, design features that are very important post-pandemic, like you know access to natural light and air, uh, more outdoor space, yeah, those are those are going to be really important, as well as all the sort of fundamental concrete lease bands and large floor plates which the building will have. And then I think more importantly as well that the fact that it will be connected to the existing Brickell City Centre, so it has the benefit of being truly integrated into that mixed-use scheme, so that everyone who works in the building can enjoy sort of seamless transition to the Metro Mover, as well as all of the you know retail and F and B that it currently exists in, in Brickell City Centre. That's a huge um, value add, I think, for, for any office project. Yeah, I think, I think especially as we, um, I report on downtown LA a lot. I'm in LA and there's a lot of conversations around, okay, how can we get people, you know, is it is it the restaurants or is it the retail? Um, how can we kind of get people interested in this market? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think just sort of personally speaking, where do I want to work? Right? I, I don't want to work five days a week at home. Um, I think that there has to be a balance. And now you're seeing a lot of companies reach that sort of equilibrium, like the, the perfect sweet spot between flexibility to work from home a bit, but also have the time in the office for those serendipitous collisions that, that we know propel businesses forward. And it, being working in an office building that's part of a, a, a larger scheme where you have all those different uses but that's controlled by one landlord, one owner, so that the quality is consistent, the quality of the experience is consistent across all those uses. I think that really is, you know, those are the office products that will thrive. And then the older, 
uh, you know, single own, single tower pro- product, those, those I think are going to suffer. And do you think that tenants will pay a premium for those, you know, premium office spaces, the newer office spaces? I think they will. Yeah, I think given how important the quality of the working environment is to talent recruitment and talent retention. You know, there's a war on talent at the moment. Right? We, we, we hear it all the time. And you're having a, a high quality office space uh, where you can allow your your employees to deliver their best work and get the best out of them. I, I think companies will pay a premium for that. What sort of industries you know, are you kind of looking at in terms of a tenant mix? I think tech and finance will lead, um, financial services and banking, certainly. And you know, as we speak to prospective anchor tenants, those two sectors are typically the ones that will be the largest space takers. And then closely behind that will be the legal services um, sector. And they tend to have slightly smaller requirements and therefore they're sort of waiting to see you know, whether the banks and the, the big tech firms commit first. And then there's, there's a lot of medium-sized requirements who I think will follow after that. And, and typically, you know, Brickle has been, as you know, the, the sort of finance center, the CBD, there's a lot of, I think 25% of the lease space here is, is for legal services. So those three sectors really are, are what we're going to be focusing on, yes. So ultimately, you know, as you mentioned, Squire's parent is in Hong Kong. I wanted to touch on demand um, from foreign investors for commercial assets in the U.S. Is that demand still there? I know that foreign investment, foreign direct investment from China particularly is kind of down compared to, you know, the peak of 2016, 2017. But I was wondering if you could talk about whether you see, still see that demand. Just to make the distinction, Swire's ultimate holding company is actually in the UK. So Swire is a, is a British family that has um, a lot of its operations in Asia, but, but ultimately you know, it, it all flows back to the family and based in London. But um, yeah, I think there is... There is a lot of interest from foreign investors in, in Florida right now. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a white hot market. We're seeing interest both domestically and, and uh, from, from foreigners as well. And I mean, we would really class ourselves as almost sort of domestic developers, given how long we've been here. And, and like, like I said, I'd say you know, SWAT, one of the key core values of, of SWIRE is they do take that long-term focus. They really can be patient and sort of wait for the sort of 20, 30-year horizon rather than needing immediate returns. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have an idea or guest you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. The next three weeks, we're focusing on the commercial mortgage-backed securities market. To kick it off, we're chatting with the founder of the instrument, Ethan Penner. Tune in then.